0: Well, Shabbat Shalom again. So, the last few weeks that we have been going through a new series through the letters of John. John's three letters were written, as we've discussed, during a very tumultuous time for the followers of Yeshua. The Apostle John, the son of Zebedee, wrote his letters after fleeing from Jerusalem when the temple was destroyed. And he fled to Ephesus, and it was at the end of his life, at the end of the first century, in which he wrote both his gospel and the three letters. John wrote his three brief letters to address conflicting theologies and behavioral concerns that were being taught, and to bring a message of hope and encouragement. This is something that we can all relate to, confusing times and the need for encouragement and hope. So if you have your Bibles, you can follow along with me. Otherwise, I'll just be reading. This section in chapter 3 focuses on us behaving as children of God. Basically, how we should conduct our lives because of our relationship to God through Yeshua. And it begins, See what love the Father has lavished on us in letting us be called God's children. For that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it has not known him. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and it has not yet been made clear that we, what we will become. We do know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he really is. Obviously, this opens back in verse 29 of the previous chapter in which he begins unpacking this idea in which because God is our father, we are his children. And by children, this word is used as both a general reference and as a way to refer to those who are not yet mature in their faith. Obviously, throughout the Tanakh and early rabbinic literature, the the Jewish people are frequently referred to as God's children. According to the scholar Michelle Murray... This imagery is used to convey the special, intimate nature of the relationship between God and the Jewish people, and how this special consecrated, or you can say holy, status places certain moral and behavioral expectations upon the house of Israel. We also know, as reflected in Acts 15 and then expanded further uh, by Paul in Ephesians 2 and 3, that Gentiles, simply through faith in Yeshua, now share in the same blessed ability in Israel and similarly have a responsibility in the way that they conduct their lives. Karen H. Jobes points out, John is still concerned with the topic of God's children living righteously, but now he brings love back into the discussion again. Because God is central, his children have eternal life. Because God is righteous, his children must live righteously. Because God loves, his children must love. And regarding this idea in verse 2, when Yeshua appears, we will be like him. And she, and Job's rightfully notes, John can say with confidence that when Yeshua returns, we will be like him because Yeshua himself said, because I live, you will also live. And because Yeshua shared in our humanity fully, Whatever he became as a resurrected human being, we will also become. But John's concern here is not about a metaphysical speculation of the children's life. It is about ethical living and reflecting the character of the father. It is about the children bearing a family resemblance to their father. And so we continue in verse three through six, a discussion of purity against sin. And everyone who has this hope in him continues purifying himself since God is pure. Everyone who keeps on sinning is violating the Torah. Indeed, sin is a violation of Torah. You know that he appeared in order to take sins away and that there is no sin in him. So no one who remains united with him continues sinning. Everyone who does continue sinning has neither seen him nor known him. From a biblical perspective, purity, and specifically ritual purity, is necessary for coming in contact with God. We see this over and over in Scripture, and it's the context in which we understand what happened during the times of the temple, right? That your relationship to God in a ritual sense depended on whether you were ritually pure or ritually impure. A lot of translations use the term uh, clean and unclean, which are horrible translations of the Hebrew, right? Because when we say in English, clean or unclean, we think dirty and gross versus clean, right? But that's not what ritual purity is. In fact, you there are times when you can do something holy and still end up in a state of ritual impurity, right? Because it's not about clean or unclean. It's about ritually able to do something and ritually unable to do something From a Jewish perspective, this was a very common idea. And so it's interesting that John here uses language and imagery related to ritual purity. And as I mentioned, this was something that was central to Judaism at the time. But, of course, he adds a twist, which we also see in James and Peter, where John uses the language of ritual purity to refer to the moral transformation of the believer just as ritual purity set one apart for service unto God and to enter into His presence, so too all believers are to be set apart by a moral consecration in their way of life. Right through the uses the same language of ritual purity, but now applies this to the purity that we establish through the way that we conduct our lives. And in verse four, we read, "Everyone who does sin, indeed, is lawless," or as my friend Dr. David Stern puts it, is violating Torah. For sin is lawlessness. Since as believers we are to be more like Yeshua, we need to live like Yeshua did in our behavior. Anytime we sin, we act in a way that is obviously not like Yeshua. So as Dr. Jobes points out, John here is pointing out the true nature of sin, not as individual random acts, but as originating from an attitude that resents God's moral demands on their lives and an attitude that John refers here to as lawlessness, a violation of the Torah. The specific Greek word that John uses for lawlessness is anomia. Can everybody say anomia? So nomos is the word for law, right? And the an or ah at the beginning of the... Uh, the word negates it. So it's saying like unlaw, right? In English, we would call that unlawfulness. So that's what's going on here. When John s- says that sin is anomia, he is saying more than that every sin is in some sense an infraction of Mosaic law. To be lawless does not mean simply to break the law. It means to disdain the very idea of a law which must, we must submit to. Anomia is the rejection of God's authority and the exaltation of the autonomy of the self, right? That's the word that gets used. The word is not just like general, just breaking a law. It's the idea that you disdain that even the idea that we have a responsibility to adhere to. John is clearly instructing his audience to be in submission to the ways of God. As Job stresses, the foundation of a right relationship with God is acknowledging that he himself defines the standard of right and wrong, and that we must be willing to submit ourselves to his authority. It then goes into another section, warning against being deceived, because this is one of the major concerns that John is writing against, right? That there's a lot of deception happening and there are false teachers. And so he's concerned about the people in his communities that he oversees, that they do not be led astray. And so he writes, children, don't let anyone deceive you. It is the person that keeps on doing what is right who is righteous, just as God is righteous. The person who keeps on sinning is from the adversary. Because from the very beginning, the adversary has kept on sinning. It was for this very reason that the Son of God appeared, to destroy things, to destroy these doings of the adversary. No one who has God as his father keeps on sinning because the seed planted by God remains in him. That is, he cannot continue sinning because he has God as his father. Here is how one can distinguish clearly between God's children and those of the adversary, Everyone who does not continue doing what is not right is not from God. This is like the day of difficult readings, right? John is again warning his to be concerned about sin and to not be seduced by false teachings. According to Dr. Jobs, by addressing his readers once again as children, the Greek word is technia John recalls to mind the question of those children of he recalls the question of whose children they are. The reference to the devil implies the question of whom they resemble. Do they resemble the father or the evil one? John refers his reader, to, fears his readers may be misled about the relationship between what one does and who one is. Therefore, he acknowledges and accepts God's authority is righteous in the same way as Yeshua was, and any claim to be a child of God while living in ways that contradict God's revealed standards is a false claim. To sin is obviously to be like Satan or the adversary because from the beginning in the Garden of Eden, Satan encouraged disobedience to God and ironically justified it as the way of being like God. Satan twists things, right? Satan twisted the idea into the impulse of sin. Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, and all human beings after them grasped becoming like God through rejecting God's authority over them. To persist in sin reveals the presence of anomia, right? This disdain for God's righteousness and contradicts any claim to have been born of God. Furthermore, in verses six and nine, where it says that no one who has God as his father keeps on sinning, right? That's a little discouraging. What is is, uh, John saying here, right? That I thought we never sin. Well, obviously earlier he says we do sin. So what is he talking about? As Dr. David Stern notes, John is not saying that once a person confesses faith in Yeshua, he will never again commit sin. This is already clear from chapter one. On the contrary, his point is that a believer should never intend to sin, right? That we should intend to live our lives in a holy and righteous way and do everything we can to do that. So as we continue in verse 10, the end of verse 10, likewise, anyone who fails to keep loving his brother is not from God. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, That we should love each other and not be like Cain, who was from the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't be amazed, brothers, if the world hates you. We, for our part, know that we have passed from death to life because we keep loving the brothers. The person who fails to keep on loving is still under the power of death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. John returns to a common theme that you see over and over again in his works, which is our love for one another. As a counterexample to loving one another, we just read that John gives the example of Cain, the Cain first murderer. The reason as Job's points out, is that Cain's motive for killing his brother reveals a foundational spiritual principle about life in this world. Those who do not do what is right hate those who do. She goes on to state, because Cain was the first murderer in the biblical story of humankind, in later tradition, he was known as the archetype sinner. Cain is therefore the personification of this word anomia, that we were talking about earlier, a disdain for for that which is in order. In verse 13, it says, the world which is self-deceived in its, uh, in its, uh, the world which is deceived represents those who try to obey God through their living by biblical values and principles. It's against those people. And verse 15, John again makes the stunning association of hate with killing. Again, a reference to Cain. This is, uh, again, something that's very interesting when I was reading this morning is like, it's very sharp what he says. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that his early murderer has eternal life in him. He's obviously connecting this back to his earlier reference to Cain. And in this context, everyone who hates their brother is like Cain who hated his brother for living righteously before God. The association of hate with murder is embodied in the biblical notion of the idea of B'Tselem Elohim, right? Created in the image of God. Because people are created in the image of God, the way that you treat them is really a reflection of your true attitude, the way that you treat God, right? And this idea itself comes from the Ten Commandments, the way Jews read the Ten Commandments. So, as all of you know, the tablets up here, that each one of these corresponds to the the opening, right, to each one of the commandments. And the very first command in the Torah, as far as the Ten Commandments goes, according to a Jewish reckoning, because there's a Christian order and a Jewish order. In the Jewish order, what's the very first commandment? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, right? What is the one right across from it? See, there's a connection. What's the one right across from it? Lotir tzach, you shall not murder. So as soon as you look at the tablets, the very first two things that you see is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and you shall not murder. There's a direct connection between these two mitzvot. When you violate one, you're violating the one it's connected to. When I was reading uh, the commentaries and everything this morning, I couldn't help thinking of, the wise, sagely words of Yoda in The Phantom Menace. (laughs) This is one of the great Robs who ever lived, people. Fear is the path to the dark side, for fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. In verse 19, he continues, here is how we will know that we are from the truth, and we'll set our hearts at rest in his presence. I skipped something. Verse 16. Let's (laughs) back to that paragraph, and then we'll go on. Verse 16. The way that we have come to know love is through his having laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If someone has worldly possessions and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how can he be loving God? Children, let us not love with words and talk, but with actions and reality. We've talked over and over and over again that from a biblical perspective, actions speak louder than words. You cannot say, I love God, and treat people like garbage. It doesn't work, right? Not from a biblical perspective. And even when it comes to our faith, you want to know the person who really has faith in God? It's not the person who has a big talk and makes a big deal out of making you feel bad, right? The person who has True faith, according to scripture, is the person whose actions back up their words. Just like James said, you ask me about my faith and I'll show you my faith by what I do. And as we mentioned last week, even these words are supported by Yeshua. When he was born about the fig tree. The reason why he curses a fig tree is because the fig tree claimed to be a fig tree, but it bore no... We're no figs. (laughs) If it doesn't have figs, it's not a fruit tree. It's not a fig tree. It doesn't matter what it claims to be. It doesn't matter if there's a sign on the front that says the marvelous, fabulous fig tree that was planted by the richest millionaire in our town. If it doesn't have figs, it's not a fig tree. It's so important that we really get this idea That how we treat one another is a reflection not only of our our true relationship to God, but it's going to affect our ability to further the work of the kingdom. Because John says elsewhere that they will know that you are really my disciples by the love that you have for who? Yourself? (laughs) You have for one another. Because that is the hardest thing to do right? Yeshua says, it's easy to love the person who loves you back. Instead, he said, pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemy. That is so hard to do, especially in a world like ours, which is being torn apart, where people are on various positions on so many things and don't want to talk to one another. We cannot be like that. It doesn't mean that you can't have opinions, but as soon as you let your opinions get in the way of something which is greater, people, please don't ever, ever, ever confuse politics with the kingdom. People do it all the time, and they assume the kingdom is embodied in a political party. It is not. It is not in a president or a king or even in a prophet. The sole authority of God rests on God alone. God at times uses individuals to accomplish his kingdom, but we need to always be careful that we don't confuse humanity with God. So he goes on here and he says, how can we trust that all of this will prove worthy? Like meaning that we will be worthy in order to accomplish these things. And he says in verse 19, here is how we will know that we are from the truth and will set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts know something against us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts know nothing against us, we have confidence in approaching God. Then whatever we ask for, we receive from him, because we are obeying his commands and doing the things that pleases him. John is encouraging his readers of the assurance of their good standing with God. As long as they are faithful and live righteously, they can be assured of their relationship. And he concludes with the unity of our observance. This is the command that we are to trust in the person and power of his son, Yeshua the Messiah, and to keep loving one another, just as he commanded us. Over and over and over again. You see John basically putting in different words the same thing that Yeshua does over and over again, right? For example, the greatest one is the one that we even read during our liturgy, where Yeshua, where Yeshua said, when he's asked by one of the sages, Rabbi, what is the greatest mitzvah in the Torah? What is, of all the mitzvot, because there are super awesome ones, what's the greatest one? And Yeshua was doing something that all the rabbis did, and that we still do, is he was able to condense all of the mitzvot into a single idea. Really, that's the way we Jews understand the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are really an embodiment of all 613, and all 613 in the Ten can be boiled down to the very first one, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The rest is commentary, right? Yeshua says the same thing, right? Because, (laughs) see my beautiful tablets here again? All right. So, the tablets here always play an important visual because remember, people didn't read back then. They heard and they saw. So, this was meant to be an important idea. What are these first, and I'm used to pointing over here because the Hebrew would be on this side. But anyway, so on this side, these are the first half of the, the tablets are all the commandments dealing with your relationship with God, right? What the rabbis call ben adam la makom, between a person and God. The other half of the tablets are between other person and their fellow person. These are the two tablets, our love for God, our love for one another. This is why Yeshua is not just making up this idea. He has good grounds to say that everything boils down to our love for God and our love for one another. The rest is commentary, right? He's just basically taking the idea of the mitzvot that have already been given and condensing them down. And this is what John says. Those who obey his commandments remain united with him and he with them. That uh, in earlier he says in just the previous verse, this is the command that we are to trust in the person and power of his son, Yeshua the Messiah, and to keep loving one another just as he commanded us. He's basically saying just do what he already told you to do. What's going on here when you read this in context and the way he keeps referring back to the beginning, meaning what was in the Tanakh, is it's not as some people say is what John is doing is he's giving us new commandments that are only from Yeshua. Yes, Yeshua is kind of giving us a new kind of understanding and a take on the commandments, but rather than being an abrogation of everything that came before, it's an affirmation, right? It's an affirmation of the commandments. And he says, here is how we know that he remains united in us by the spirit whom he gave us. And again, again, We can't read this the way that we do today. Most of us have a dichotomy in our mind that there is the Torah and then there's the Spirit, right? You're either under the law or you are of the Spirit. This is not what the Bible talks about. Often throughout the New Testament, the Bible does talk about things where the Holy Spirit is given to us to be our comforter, to speak to us, to give life to us. But when you read all throughout, especially the Prophets, One of the themes that comes over and over and over again is, especially, for example, let me just give you one example, Ezekiel 36 and 37, where God says, I will put my spirit in you so that you can what? Do whatever you want? He says, I'll put my spirit in you so that you can walk in my ways and observe my mitzvot, right? That you will be able to observe the commandments because I'm putting my spirit within you to enable you to be able to do it. There's a lot that's in the letters of John, which I rushed through since the service (laughs) was going a little longer today. But what's important is we really grasp the idea of having a strong faith, to be people who don't just show up once a week, we punch our spiritual time clock, and then we go about our business in the rest of the week. Instead, we understand that the reason why we come here is in order to go back out there, to do the work of the kingdom, right? To prepare the way of the return of Mashiach. To be the extension of Messiah in the world around us, to be his hands, his feet, his ears, his eyes, his heart. To love those who at times it's difficult to love. To be in relationship with those who it's difficult to be in relationship with to reach out to those on the fringes of society. That we need to do our best, as John over and over and over again warns us, to avoid sin, to not let our lives be governed by what we want to do, instead be governed by what we should do, and to live a life of spiritual maturity, to not let ourselves be deceived, and to not lose hope. We must recognize that we are created in the image of God and how we treat one another is a direct reflection of our relationship with God. Let us be a community when people walk into this place that they would say that I know the presence of God is here because I see that the love that people have for one another. Let us be people that when somebody walks into our synagogue that we don't know that they would feel welcomed and loved. Often the biggest reason why people who visit a place of worship never return is nobody, not a single person said hello to them. It's the biggest reason why nobody ever returns. They weren't made to feel welcome. Let us be a place that practices radical welcome. Let's put our faith into practice. Let's make a commitment that when we're upset with one another, that we don't cut off communication. Instead, we intensi- intensify our communication to be able to work out. Like, hey, let's come to an agreement. Even if we end up saying, you know what? You have your position, I have mine, but there's something the greater which unites us. Let us walk in the light, as John instructs us. Rabono shelolam, Master of the Universe. I know that a lot of our passages today, and including some of the instructions that we read in John, can be difficult and hard, but they're not impossible. Even when you gave us the mitzvot, it says in Deuteronomy, don't think that this is unattainable. Don't think who will go over the land and sea and up over the mountains in order to accomplish this. Instead, it's very near to you and in you. And Jeremiah 31 says, you will be able to do these things because I will create a renewed covenant with the house of Israel and I will put my Torah in you and no longer shall anybody say know me because you will all know me. Give us. You promised us, God, that we would be able to walk in your ways. So give us through your ruach, through your spirit, the ability to be able to do that, to be able to live righteously and justly that you would be reflected in the way that we treat one another, that you would be exalted in our relationships, in our friendships, in our marriages, in our workplace, everything that we do, that we would do it for the purpose of the kingdom. As the saying goes, often we can do more for the kingdom with actions rather than words. Sometimes we just need to live the gospel, and I pray that we would do that, that your Torah through the living Torah would be made alive in us and through us, and that with your help, we can change the world. If 12 Jews turn the world upside down at one time, I believe we can do it again. And now we have even more followers than just the original 12 and, and their extended disciples. Let us pursue the path of righteousness and peace and to walk in the light with your help. In the name of Yeshua, amen. Please rise.